Good, okay, so a very warm welcome to the final meeting of the Aristotelian Society before the Easter break. And it's a, a great pleasure to welcome Matthew Chrisman uh, to give this evening's paper. Uh, Matthew is uh, a reader in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, and his work ranges uh, very widely. It includes interests in ethics, the philosophy of language, and epistemology. Uh, all three of which will be evidenced in his paper this evening, which is going to be concerned with issues that are in the intersection of those three areas. Um, we'll follow the usual format. Matthew will speak for between 45 minutes and an hour, and then we'll have a, a brief break for tea and coffee and refreshments. And the question and answer session will then pick up and we'll go through to about 7.15 p.m., so, uh, without further ado, I'll introduce Matthew, whose paper is called Knowing What One Ought to Do. Thank you, um, and thanks for the introduction. So, this paper, I'm going to talk um, with the handout, not read the paper. I hope that's um, something that people can accept and follow along in the handout. If you don't have a handout, you need to grab one. Um, this paper is... Uh, my thinking on this paper got started when I was thinking about issues that I guess are originally located in moral epistemology, so thinking about how we have moral knowledge, um, uh, what moral knowledge is like, um, but very quickly, as I've liked to do in other stuff that I've worked on, um, it very quickly became a paper about and thinking about um, normative knowledge more generally, and as we'll see, as you'll see later on the paper, um, maybe even knowledge that's not quite normative or normative in some robust sense, but still uh, knowledge of what one ought to do. Um, the title of the paper might give you the impression that this is a paper about how we know what one ought to do, and I think there's interesting issues there about uh, with what faculties do we know what we ought to do, um, debates between intuitionist and coherentist uh, conceptions of moral knowledge or normative knowledge, um, also issues about how we would come to have normative knowledge uh, do we derive it from some prior principles, or um, how does justification in the normative domain work? But that's not what the paper's about, so just to warn you. Um, the paper's not how we come to have about how we come to have normative knowledge or how we come to know what one ought to do, but rather once we have that knowledge, or assuming a case of that knowledge, what's that knowledge like? Um, so the example I used in the paper was uh, that uh, we might know that we ought to help our friends in general, um, but one to come to know whether um, we ought to so sign a false affidavit um, if we're sure, on behalf of our friends, if we're sure that it won't harm anybody. Um, you might want to know whether you ought to do that, all things considered, or whether you ought to do that morally, or whether you ought to do that prudentially. There's um, several questions there. Um, let's assume we come to know the answer to one of those questions. What's that knowledge like? Um, that's the main question in this paper. Um, and just to give you a real brief preview of the answer, um, I think we need to recognize the uh, peculiar um, modal aspect in, um, in ought claims uh, alongside the peculiar prescriptive aspect. And so part of the trick of the paper is getting those two things to come together in a kind of nice and coherent way. Um, so I guess I think that these questions about how we know or on what principle do we know um, tend to presuppose, or my, this is, I guess, a hunch more than a thesis I'm capable of arguing for, but tend to presuppose um, 
one of two pictures that are in seeming tension. And so what I want to do in the first part of the paper is describe these two pictures um, and try to elicit some of the tension or get you to feel some of the tension. And then I'll spend the rest of the paper trying to alleviate the tension as much as I can. Um, okay, so here is uh, some stage setting, two pictures of ought knowledge um, in apparent tension. Um, so the first stage, the first picture, um, I think we can see this is driving from a, a relatively standard truth conditionalist approach to compositional semantics. Um, so the, as many of you all surely know, the basic idea there is to explain the contribution that each part of the sentence makes to the meaning of the whole sentence in which it figures by determining what it contributes to the determination of the conditions under which these sentences are, would be true. Um, and there's a whole lot of debate to be had there in the philosophy language about what that explains, how much that explains, what else we need for a full theory of meaning. Um, that's not my topic now. Just start with that basic idea that I think a lot of philosophers of language accept as a starting point. Um, moreover, um, for various complicated reasons I won't go into, um, the now standard way of, of thinking about the um, truth conditional semantics is um, to model the content of a sentence in terms of a restriction on some possibility, possibilia, the possible worlds the sentence correctly describes or represents. Um, and then this allows us, if we do this, to explain, or at least begin to explain, semantic relations between sentences in terms of set theoretic relations between worlds that model their contents. Um, so the only real idea that you need to have there is that um, a declarative sentence S uh, expresses a proposition which we think of as the set of worlds where S is true. Um, if you accept that basic starting point in compositional semantics, uh, which I do, um, then there's a natural picture that's often drawn out from that about um, propositional knowledge. Um, this is what I'm going to call the locational picture. The idea there is that um, for any declarative sentence S, knowing that S is knowing whether the actual world is in the set of possible worlds correctly described by S. Um, so as a kind of metaphorical way of thinking about that, um, propositional knowledge is a kind of descriptive locational knowledge. It's like knowing which maps in an indefinite library of maps correctly represent the relevant part of reality, correctly pinpoint where the actual world is in a space of possible worlds, um, only up to a certain level of uh, precision, but um, locating ourselves, the actual world, within a space of possible worlds. Um, so this is, I think, originally conceived of as a a kind of natural picture for uh, very ordinary propositional knowledge, knowledge that um, uh, the table's brown or I'm standing or something like that. Um, but insofar as it's supposed to work for all declarative sentences, all sentences that we think of as expressing propositions, um, it should extend to the sentences that are at issue in this talk or at issue in this paper, um, sentences about one, what one ought to do. So instances of one ought to phi are declarative sentences, and so knowing what one ought to do uh, should fall out as an instance of this general picture. Um, if that's if we follow this line, then um, this knowledge is something like the ability to locate the actual world within the set of possible worlds correctly described by the sentence x ought to phi, or a sentence of that form. Okay, so that's the kind of first picture. Um, I'm going to call it the locational picture deriving from the semantic framework or the framework. Um, the other picture of ought knowledge it, I, I cast in the paper sort of as a response to that, although I guess you could get there, there independently and it's, it looks like it's different in intention. Um, 
one way to think about this, and the way I originally thought about this was um, based on uh, um, Hume's idea that you can't derive an ought from an is. Um, you might think, well, wait a second. Um, Hume showed us that if, any, if Hume showed us anything, one thing he showed us that it was really important to distinguish between um, knowledge of what is the case and um, claims, or if they even could be knowledge of what somebody ought to do. Um, there's an important distinction between is and ought. Or if you want to go with Kant, one thing Kant maybe taught us was that the mode of understanding by which we know something descriptive about the empirical world in front of us is importantly fundamentally different than the mode of understanding by which we know what to do, um, by which we know um, some normative fact or normative claim. Um, or just people often refer to the difference between uh, descriptions of what is the case and norms which prescribe what somebody's to do. Where do can be broad, do can be an action, a thought, or a feeling. Um, so that's the kind of what I've on the handout here said is the high-minded Humean Kantian version of this idea. But I think there's also, and this is really what's operational in this talk, a much more basic kind of ordinary language um, thought here. So the Humean or Kantian idea often seems like, and this will become relevant when we distinguish different species of ought later, but it seems like it's focused on something like the moral ought or all things considered ought or ought with genuine normative force um, rather than what might be some weaker ought relative to um, etiquette or ought relative to the law or ought relative to some um, um, some domain some domain specific kind of ought um, but even here I think we get a kind of ordinary language intuition that um, there's a difference between saying what is the case um, our claims in that form are uh, for one kind of activity describing the world um, and uh, saying what somebody ought to do our claims in that um, domain are for telling people what to do or prescribing action and, and thought and feeling in a certain way. Um, so I think um, the talk won't really be about, although it's, I think, relevant, this high-minded Humean Kantian version of the idea of all things considered or moral ought. It'll be about this uh, more basic, uh, I think, intuitive um, uh, ordinary language idea that, that, there's a, that there's a difference between language that tells us what is the case and language that prescribes by, by telling us what somebody ought to do. Um, so given that intuition, um, statements about, so here's the intuition, um, statements about what one ought to do, e um, even many of which aren't intended or taken to be all things considered normative, uh, these statements seem to be prescriptive rather than descriptive um, in the sense that they're foretelling people what to do rather than what reality's like. Um, and out of this, I think, falls what I'll call the directional picture of knowledge of what one ought to do. Um, this is that uh, knowing that one ought to phi is a kind of practical directional rather than descriptive locational knowledge. Rather than knowing which maps correctly represent some part of reality, it's like having someone draw two points on the map telling you where to go from where you are or where one is to go from where one is. Um, so that's the apparently competing directional picture of knowledge of what one ought to do. Um, and so I hope you feel at least some tension between these two pictures. The um, descriptive locational picture um, applies to all is supposed to apply to all propositional knowledge, and by virtue of that, apply to knowledge of what one ought to do. The directional um, uh, picture is one that looks like it derives from thinking that ought is somehow special or of a special class, uh, uh, whereby we tell people what to do or reason about what people are to do. 
Um, okay, so the rest of the paper, what I want to do is work through three steps um, that are intended to um, start to resolve the apparent tension between this, um, these two pictures. Um, so the three steps are, first, a kind of contextualism about ought, and second, a kind of um, norm relativism about ought, um, and finally, a somewhat complicated synthesis of the two ideas. Um, so I'll, when I get to the synthesis, I'll kind of break it down a little bit more directly. But to start first with contextualism, so I think one natural thought in the space is that um, uh, moral philosophers and maybe uh, epistemologists have been a little bit too focused on uh, only a very specific species or instance of the uh, use of the word ought, and there's a, we actually use the word ought in a lot of different ways. Um, and if you look to the literature on theoretical semantics, um, the received view there is that ought is a modal verb, and like other, other modal verbs, its meaning is sensitive to context of use in several distinctive ways. Um, there's a kind of uh, a lot we could discuss about how exactly that con that that works, um, and I'm going to uh, move quickly over a lot of the possible details. But just to get your your head around the idea, um, think about the sentence: Jerry ought to win his race. Um, and if you think about it, this sentence seems like it could mean a lot of different things depending on the context in which it's used. It could mean it could have a moral sense. It could mean he's morally obligated to keep his promise to do so. Um, it could have a kind of prudential sense where we think of that as somehow different than moral. His life would go best, but maybe not everybody's, if he won. Um, it could have a, a what is sometimes called a teleological sense, an, 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 where we think about it. Um, it is related to a very narrow or specific goal, so maybe um, uh, this is the best way to achieve his goal of uh, um, promoting his career. Um, it can have what's called an epistemic sense, um, where it means something like it's highly likely that um, he'll win, or it's highly unexpected if he didn't win. Um, and it can, be have, it can have, among other things, uh, what's sometimes called a bulletic sense, related to what would be best overall, where that's not um, uh, presupposing any uh, any particular person's action, so it would be it would be good overall or best overall um, if he happened to win this time. Um, so those are just some of the things that this sentence could mean. Um, so it seems like this sentence clearly needs um, some interaction with the context in which it's used uh, to determine one of these or one among these many different meanings. Um, and this is relevant here. I mean, this is interesting for independent reasons, but it's relevant here for two reasons. Um, first, uh, it highlights the fact that not all ought claims are prescriptive. Um, so when I say that I want a picture of uh, knowledge of what one ought to do um, that recognizes the peculiar modal and prescriptive character of ought, um, I think it's really important that that's not true of all ought claims, and so not all knowledge of what, and then you put ought in there afterwards, is going to come out as... Um, prescriptive in the way that I'm thinking about it. So just in the, those examples, the epistemic ought and the bulletic ought um, don't look like they're prescriptive in any sense. Certainly the epistemic one doesn't. Um, but the second reason is that this a contextualist idea um, might look like it can help us to resolve some of the tension between the two pictures I start out with. Um, so when we apply the framework, the semantic framework I mentioned at the beginning uh, to ought sentences, um, it's going to have to be more complicated than um, when we apply it to ordinary subject predicate sentences. Um, and you might think, well, there's maybe some room in that complication that we'll need, and I'll describe that complication in a second, um, to resolve the tension between the locational and directional pictures. 
of of knowledge of what one ought to do. Um, the standard way, as many of you all surely know, to extend the framework to odd sentences is to treat it as a necessity-like modal. Um, this is not entirely uncontroversial, and it looks like odd is weaker than must, so there's some way we have to take care of that. But uh, bracketing all of that, um, we think of odd as a box-like operator, um, taking some uh, embedded what's called a projacent proposition and evaluating whether it holds across a contextually determined set of possible worlds, where the contextually determined flavor of the odd, like moral or prudential or teleological or epistemic or boletic or whatever, um, is partly determined uh, of the odd. So context determines that, and and that determines um, a set of worlds. So we get a, a semantic rule. I mean, this is just the kind of Kripke rule for, for necessity modals, but um, as a starting point, we get a semantic rule like the one on the handout. Um, ought P is sentences of the form ought P are true, just in case P is true at all the relevantly accessible worlds. Um, and then, of course, what counts as relevantly accessible um, is determined in a complex way, depending on context of use. Um, and then here's where this is, uh, this might help with the tension. You might think, well, sometimes context of use picks out um, worlds that are somehow normal to be relevant or where the agent in question does what, uh, what is prescribed, something like that. Um, just a quick note, because it'll become relevant later. On this view, context is relevant for picking out the, the worlds we're thinking about, um, but it's also relevant for recovering the proposition that's embedded under the ought um, from the surface level of sentence. So just that, as those examples from before illustrate, Jerry ought to win his race, it's not obvious what the proposition is that ought is embedding there. And the examples, uh, they differ in which exact proposition they use as uh, the embedded proposition. So it's going to be something about context of use that helps um, uh, hearers to recover which um, proposition is embedded. Um, okay, so if we go that far, we might think that context can mark out some oughts as special and being prescriptive for the agent in question. Knowing what one ought to do would still be a matter of understanding something about where the actual world is in the space of possible worlds, albeit in a somewhat more complex way that involves knowing which further worlds are accessible from the actual worlds. Sometimes what makes a world accessible on this view would be whether the relevant normative demands in the actual world are satisfied by the agent's counterpart in uh, the set of possible worlds. Um, so I think this is clearly a step in the right direction. I think moral philosophers have tended to uh, not be as quick to notice the diversity of flavors of ought and the way context is relevant, not just for um, distinguishing between different flavors of ought in, co in conversation, but also locating the, the type of content that's embedded under an ought. Um, but I, I feel like it doesn't go far enough to respecting the intuition of difference between ought and is. Um, so the intuition uh, described before implies that knowledge that I to phi can provide direction, telling me that fine is the thing for me to do, at least in some respect. Uh, and that seems to be different from knowing that in all the relevant accessible possible worlds, my counterpart phi's. Um, to use a kind of old point from Kripke, we could say, um, why would the shenanigans of my counterpart in other possible worlds be relevant to my practical deliberations here in the actual world? Um, Moreover, and maybe this is kind of the same point, but on this contextualist view, it looks as if, um, if we go back to that maps metaphor I was using before, uh, some of the maps that correctly represent uh, a corner of reality also have flags on them indicating that a goal is accessible. Um, that is, some possible person like me gets there. Um, but it doesn't look like a map with flags on it can by itself capture the way in which ought knowledge uh, 
actually prescribes a goal to me or actually prescribes an action to me or uh, a belief or a thought or a feeling. Okay, so contextualism step in the right direction, um, but not quite far enough, doesn't yet revolve, resolve the tension. Um, now I want to move, uh, as I say, turn, turn the crank a step further um, and talk about norm relativism. Um, so here things get a little bit more complicated um, uh, in the semantics, uh, but I think I can get the basic idea across um, straightforwardly. Um, so rather than treating declarative sentences as having truth values relative to possible worlds, some philosophers have argued uh, that we need to enrich our semantic framework, um, uh, enrich the possible worlds model um, to include other kinds of parameters relative to which we evaluate sentences. So for example, um, sometimes people are talking about uh, probability operators saying something's likely or probable, um, unlikely, improbable, uh, suggest that um, uh, in order to really understand the content of those sentences, we need to think of them as holding uh, not at a possible world, but at a possible world evidence pair. Um, or to handle future contingent sentences, people have suggested that we need to think of sen sentences, at least ones that are about future contingents, as um, not true or false at a world, but holding relative to a world time pair. Um, or to handle sentences of personal taste uh, at a world standards pair, or to handle uh, distinctively de say or de te sentences at world individual pairs. Um, I won't go into any of those different possibilities except to suggest that um, we could also do the same thing for ought sentences or um, sentences that we think of as um, somehow relative to um, norms in an important sense. Um, so the application of this idea to ought sentences, suppressing all the other types of possible semantic relativity, would be to say that sentences hold or not relative to world norm pairs, uh, depending on what propositions are true at the worlds and what possible states of affairs are correct relative to the norms. Um, and then importantly, these two things will often interact because you might think um, what state of affairs is correct in part depends on the factual conditions of a world, um, but also on something normative. That's the idea. Um, so this, if you're familiar with some of Gibbard's work, will, um, will seem familiar. Um, his idea, I think, was that the content, at least in the 1990 book, was that the content of any declarative sentence S could be modeled as a set of world norm pairs, the set of pairs of possible worlds and possible norms relative to which S holds. Okay, that's kind of complicated or abstract, so let me give you an example. Um, if we take the sentence, Sally ought to devote her life to philosophy, and assume that it's prescriptive in the way that's relevant um, for the tension between the two pictures I started with, um, then on this norm relativist view, we'll say that this sentence S holds at a world norm pair, just in case the factual conditions of the world are such that the state of affairs where Sally devotes her life to philosophy are correct relative to the norm. That means the content of S can be modeled as the set of all such world norm pairs, very much like we previously modeled the set of a of an ordinary declarative sentence in terms of the, um, the set of all possible worlds where it was true. Um, there's some difficult issues to work out with this picture. What exactly is a norm? Um, how exactly does a norm depend on the factual conditions in order to render a sentence that a sentence holds? Um, those are some things that I think require further thought. Um, but the promise in this 
going this direction is that we get similar resources to the standard truth conditionalist framework for explaining semantic relations between sentences um, and among their parts and set theoretic terms. But it also replies, provides an, a, a way to respect the intuition that odd sentences um, are not descriptive, not even descriptive of complex modal conditions of reality. For in this view, these sentences don't behave, uh, sorry, these sentences don't have traditional truth conditions. Whether they hold at a world norm pair depends on the norms rather than only on the, the facts that attain, obtain at the world. Um, so that's why I think uh, this might be seen as an attractive way to resolve the tension that I started with. You get um, uh, a picture of, of ought knowledge that, or knowledge of what's, what one ought to do that um, is uh, roughly isomorphic to, well, the content of the sentence is roughly isomorphic to um, the standard possible worlds picture, um, and you can use this idea of locating ourselves, but we have to locate ourselves not just among possible worlds, but also among possible norms. And then if you think, you know, in the cases where, that, where the knowledge requires that, then um, it is different than knowledge that only requires locating ourselves in, among possible worlds. Um, the hope would be that it's different in precisely the way we need to capture the prescriptivity of that, those oughts. Um, however, and this is maybe my kind of set up my objection, but the, the worry is that um, although it's different, it doesn't capture the prescriptivity. Um, so I suspect that relativism still obscures the way that ought knowledge can be directional, for it seems to make understanding ought sentences into something like understanding what possible states of affairs count as correct relative to some norms, rather than understanding what, what the sentence tells the relevant agent to do in various possible conditions. Um, and there's, I'm not quite sure how to defend that that worry that I have, but um, there's something in there, I think, about the way states of affairs are kind of have determinate location and time, and um, and so they've happened or they haven't happened. Whereas this um, to do is more indefinite, um, indeterminate, um, and so knowledge of what one ought to do, I think, needs to, um, in order for it to be prescriptive in the right way, needs to um, uh, needs to respect that in, a, in an important way. Um, to go back to the metaphor, in case that helps. Um, on the relativist view, it's as if some of the maps have reg regions that are colored red and green, um, not to rep represent factual conditions of reality, but to mark out which parts of reality accord with the relevant norms and which don't. So the worry here is something like this. While telling someone what to do is related to dividing states of affairs into correct and incorrect in some respect, it's not obvious that these two things are the same. Um, it's not obvious that these are equivalent or when somebody knows what they ought to do um, that... Um, they know just which regions of reality are green or whatever. Um, okay, so that's the norm relatives picture. I think it makes strides in the right direction, um, but I still worry that it doesn't quite capture the prescriptivity of knowledge of what we're not to do. Okay, so my plan then is in the rest of the talk to try to, well, I'll do two things in the rest of the talk. I'll try to take these two ideas, contextualism and norm relativism, and put them together in a novel way um, that uh, goes a step further and hopefully does more to resolve the tension. Um, and then I'll conclude by talking a little bit about how this interacts with some broader issues in metanormative theory and the philosophy of language. Um, so the, uh, the synthesis I want uh, to try to create um, could also see, be seen as coming in three steps itself. So um, uh, the first step is to uh, change topics temporarily and talk not about although it's not really that far different, talk, talk about the meaning of imperatives. 
so I've been complaining that these other pictures don't quite get the prescriptivity of some ought knowledge. Um, well, let's think about uh, how exactly are imperatives prescriptive and, and how should we understand their meaning. Um, so I'll propose to reapply the norm relativist idea not to declarative ought sentences, but to imperatives. Um, and then I'll propose to refine the contextualist view of the meaning of the word ought um, so that it can allow the embedding of um, not just propositions, but also prescriptions. Um, and then that'll provide a way to reconceive knowledge of what one ought to do, a way that um, I argue captures the prescriptivity uh, when we want to. So that's the plan for the next section. Okay, so um, one issue that I think uh, people worried about the, the norm relativist view and also um, other types of relativist views in the philosophy of language is that it's not quite clear um, how that relates to evaluating the relevant sentences as true or false. Um, but all the relevant sentences seem like the sorts of sentences that can be true or false. They're all declarative sentences. Um, so when we say that a normative declarative, like um, Sally ought to devote her life to philosophy, is uh, holds relative to a world norm pair, what exactly are we saying? What's how's the relationship between that? What's the relationship between that and um, thinking the sentence is true? Um, it's that's a difficult question. Um, it's much clearer, I think, that imperatives aren't the sorts of sentences that are true and false, um, and so they shouldn't be assigned truth values at possible worlds. Um, nevertheless, they do stand in semantic relations like entanglement, inconsistency, um, and so forth, um, and we should think of them as semantically composed, um, and we would want the account of their semantic composition to help us to explain um, why they stand in those types of uh, semantic relations with other imperatives and sometimes declaratives. In fact, you can even embed um, imperatives and declaratives under sentential operators like disjunction. Um, so we need some broader theory of meaning that explains both the semantic composition of declaratives and the semantic con composition of imperatives and integrates them. Um, it's a big project in the philosophy of language and formal semantics to explain how to do that. Um, but here's an initial idea that I like. Um, as we standardly think of declaratives or their contents, propositions, as true or not relative to possible worlds, we might think of imperatives or their contents, which I'll call prescriptions, as correct or not relative to possible norms. Um, so the idea is basically to use something like the norm relativist idea that Gibbard had for declarative normative sentences, but apply it to imperatives instead. Um, so more precisely, since the status of a prescription also often depends on the factual conditions and the situation to which it is supposed to apply, uh, we might find some traction for semantics and logic of imperatives in a semantic model that assigns imperatives correctness values relative to world norm pairs. Um, so we'll think of, uh, just like we previously thought of a declarative as true relative to a world, we'll think of an imperative as correct or not relative to a world norm pair. Um, and if we generalize that idea, then we can enhance the original framework um, so that the semantic content of a declarative or an imperative sentence S determines a set of world norm pairs, or we model it as a set of world norm pairs relative to which S holds. But now we recognize two species of holding, one that's appropriate for declaratives, truth, and another that's appropriate for imperatives, correctness, correctness relative to norms. And here it becomes important how exactly to think about norms, and again, I don't have a full worked out answer, but one way you could to get this model up and going is just to think about norms as higher, higher level, more general imperatives. Um, so when a declarative sentence S holds relative to a world norm pair, um, 
that's because the proposition expresses is contained in the world parameter, or it's true relative to the world parameter. And when an imperative S holds relative to a world norm pair, um, that's because the prescription it expresses is contained in uh, the norm parameter, or is correct relative to the norm parameter, given whatever is true at the relevant world par parameter. So this is just, again, like I said, the reapplication of the norm relativist idea to imperatives rather than declaratives. Where I think it's more plausible because from the get-go we shouldn't think of those as, as truth apt. Um, okay, so if we do that, how's that help with the original problem about ought and knowing what we ought to do? Um, well, I think to, to get it to help, we need to refine the um, uh, contextualist view about ought we got to in, earlier in the paper. Um, so my suggestion is that we allow that ought can operate on a more complex range of adjacents as it can embed more, a more complex, or it can embed different kinds of contents, uh, both propositions and prescriptions. Um, and as before, the surface sentence alone won't determine which it, which it is. We'll also need context of use to help us recover whether or not sentence is embedding a prescription or embedding a proposition. Uh, but in any case, prescriptive oughts are going to be the ones uh, which context determines to embed a prescription as the projacent rather than a proposition. When ought operates on a prescriptive projacent, we'll say that it evaluates whether this prescription is correct across, across a range of accessible world norm pairs. Um, so that's a kind of supposed to be a conservative extension of a standard uh, semantics for necessity modal, just that allows this prescription, this possibility that some oughts embed prescriptions. This is like we previously said, and more or less continue to say about non-prescriptive oughts and other necessity modals, um, that they evaluate whether their embedded proposition, the propositional projection, is true across a range of accessible worlds. So at a sort of similar level of roughness to the rule for ought I gave before, the contextualist rule, here's a kind of enhanced contextualist rule, um, ought P is true if and only if P holds at all of the relevantly accessible world norm pairs. But now we recognize two species of, two kinds of P, so there's the prescriptions and the propositions, and there's the uh, co-relative two kinds of holding. There's the um, correctness relative to norms for the prescriptions and truth relative to worlds for the propositions. And I guess it's, that's, it's not clear that's the way I, I designed it that way because I want to recognize that some ought claims are propositional. They have propositions as their embedded content. They're not prescriptions. They're not prescriptive. So especially like an epistemic ought where we say something like um, it ought to rain tonight. Um, I want to think of that as embedding a proposition and treat it in pretty much a standard way, um, but recognize as another special case, um, cases where oughts embed prescriptions, and then think about, well, so what exactly are they doing when they embed in prescriptions? And the suggestion is that they're embedding, they're evaluating the correctness of that prescription relative to uh, world norm pairs, or relative to norms, given what's true at various worlds. And again, it's going to be something about context of use that helps us determine the, f the relevant flavor of ought. So we could talk about the, um, the moral norms or the prudential norms or the, uh, the norms governing achieving a, a specific end. All of those would give us different types of or species of, of ought claim. The, um, so I, I kind of like this picture of the meaning of ought, but the payoff for this paper is supposed to be that it helps us to move further in resolving the tension between the two pictures of knowing what we ought to do. So this is the last step. Um, although we'll, we'll, on this view, continue to think of knowledge of what one ought to do as a sort of modal knowledge, it won't be construed as the ability to locate only the actual world in a space of possible worlds, 
um, it'll be still locational, but um, now we understand this knowledge as involving locating agents in a space of possible world norm pairs. When prescriptive, knowing that one ought to phi is knowing that one's phiing is, is prescribed across a range of possible worlds given a ra range of possible norms that apply. Back to the metaphor, it's something like having a temporally extended map with a dynamic navigational system capable of calculating where you are and telling you where, you're, where you are to go to get to where you're supposed to be, at least where you're supposed in some respect to be. So I think we all prefer to have uh, our modern GPSs to, <laughs> to the static maps. Um, maybe, maybe that's not true, but <laughs> um, I prefer to have uh, a modern GPS system to a static map. Um, so that's the kind of picture and the way in which I'm trying to um, using a kind of uh, uh, an enhancement of the semantics, the standard modal semantics for for ought um, to resolve this tension that I started with. Um, I want to con conclude by addressing two questions that might be sort of at the front of your mind, and that my answer to these two questions isn't fully satisfactory. But I'll, I'll say a few things just so you can kind of see where this picture or this account is supposed to be supposed to fit within a range of other issues that come up in philosophy of language and normative theory. <coughs> so the first question I want to ask and, and respond briefly to is um, uh, about this thing I mentioned at the beginning, all things considered normativity or moral normativity. So given that there are definitely many possible norms, you might wonder on this picture, what determines which norms are such that the prescriptions they render correct have something like reason giving or normative force for particular agents in particular cir circumstances. Um, so the account of, of sketch is one that's supposed to work when we think of, when we talk even about knowing what one ought to do um, to be polite or knowing what one ought to do um, legally rather than morally or no, knowing what one, ought to, what one ought to do in order to achieve some postulated end which may or may not be an end that the agent has. Um, those are all cases where um, some philosophers have been inclined to think that the the relevant ought claim isn't isn't robustly normative or truly normative, but it's still uh, prescriptive in some more weak sense. Um, so you might wonder, well, what distinguishes those cases from knowing what one ought to do, all things considered, or uh, fully normatively knowing knowing what what one ought to do in a generally normative sense of ought? You sometimes hear philosophers say. Um, my answer to this question is, um, <coughs> I don't think it's the job of semantics to uh, tell us that difference. I think that's a place where we need first-order normal reflection on what counts as reasons for action, thought, and feeling. Um, I think semantics can help us, and a semantics like one of the contextual semantics I've talked about can help us realize that some oughts uh, might be uh, uh, relative to some norms, other oughts might be relative to other norms, and it's something about the context of use that helps us to interpret them um, uh, in conversation. Um, but it's not the job of semantics to uh, tell us the source of normativity any more than it's the job of semantics to tell us the source of necessity, um, is my view. Um, the second question, and I have a bit more to say about this, is um, uh, about sort of the result I got to. So I, I started out. Um, saying that uh, on the standard locational descriptive picture, knowledge is locating the actual world within a space of possible worlds, in particular knowing that P is 
uh, knowing that the actual world is among the possible worlds correctly described by a sentence that uh, expresses the proposition P. I said something roughly like that. Um, I've ended up with a picture according to which we still get truth conditions for ought sentences, not these complex holding conditions like Gibbard used. Um, so you might wonder if in the end there's a formula determining the truth conditions of an ought sentence, then doesn't that mean that the statements deploying these sentences are descriptive after all? Um, and the rough form of my answer here is that I don't, I want to divorce truth from description um, and don't want to see all sentences that we think of as having truth conditions as describing. Um, the broader background picture here is that I think um, there are various competing meta-semantic interpretations of truth conditional semantics. So uh, theories or views about what it is in virtue of which the correct semantic uh, semantics is correct. Um, views that seek grounding explanations in non-semantic facts for the semantic facts. Um, and I see at least three, and there's probably more ways of thinking about this, um, different types of, uh, of meta-semantic accounts of what's going on in truth conditional semantics. <coughs> and only one of them kind of commits you to that thought that if it has a truth condition, then it's descriptive. So the first one, the one that commits you to that thought, or at least seems to commit you to that thought, um, is to think that uh, truth is something, like I say, about describing reality. So we get a sort of descriptivist or representationalist account of um, of what a truth condition is. So um, a sentence, a sentence's truth condition tells us how reality would have to be in order for that sentence to be true. Um, if you thought that uh, that's what truth conditions do um, across the board, then you would endorse a kind of representationalist conception of truth conditions. And I think you can take the semantic rule that I outlined for ought and interpret it in that way. Um, but I tend to interpret it in one of the other ways. Um, uh, so another way that just taking recent metaethics as kind of a guide that some people are inclined to, to do this is what I'll call ideationalist. Um, so the thought here is something like the truth conditions are best semantics assigns to a declarative sentence tell us um, what one ought to think uh, if one asserts that sentence in normal discursive practice. Um, so what one, uh, what thought one is committed to having uh, via the core communicative rules of, this, of the language. Um, so there's a, there's a way in which um, that's one way of understanding a sentence as expressing a mental state, and, um, and this allows for a, a kind of uh, non-standard expressivist view in metaethics about, about ought um, claims. So you might think that the truth conditions of an ought claim or, or normative claims more generally tell us uh, what one ought to think when one asserts the claim. So if I say, uh, Sally ought to devote her life, life to philosophy, um, on this view, um, we're going to say that's true just in case and then put in something somewhat complicated. Um, but that that complicated thing is a um, specification of the content of the thought one ought to have when one asserts that sentence. Um, and so far in that picture, we haven't said anything about whether that thought attempts to represent the way reality is or move us to act or do something else. So I think some expressives are, intended, are t tempted to think, well, we can assign truth conditions to uh, normative sentences like these, um, but interpret those truth conditions not as telling us how reality would have to be in order for the sentence to be true, but as telling us what one ought to think um, uh, when one asserts the sentence. And then they can tell a story in the philosophy of mind, roughly a functionalist story in the philosophy of mind, whereby that type of thought, when the content is normative, um, is non-representational. Um, has a different direction of fit with the world. Um, so that's a kind of different 
um, I think less well worked out, but 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 uh, possible meta semantic view uh, for something even sort of less well worked out is the view I tend to favor. Um, so you could um, you could think of the truth conditions our best semantic theory assigns to uh, odd sentences as um, telling us what one is committed to with a normal use of that sentence, where you think of those commitments as um, inferentially specified. So um, what you've committed to in terms of what else follows from uh, what you said and uh, the sort of thing that you'd have to defend by um, providing reasons uh, for what you've said. Um, so this is a, a broadly inferentialist or conceptual role type of interpretation of, of odd sentences. Um, so the, uh, the key idea there would be that um, some sentences uh, are um, – we would align odd sen- we would align odd sentences with modal sentences, and we would align modal sentences with uh, logical sentences of a certain sort, and think of um, the story about why logical sentences have the truth conditions they do, uh, not in terms of they're representing something in reality, but in terms of the way they govern a particular inferential practice. Um, that's all a bit telegraphic. The important point is just that um, there are other ways besides the descriptivist or representationalist way to interpret the truth conditions assigned to odd sentences um, or all sentences. And um, in those other ways, I think there's room to divorce the notion of something's having a truth condition from its being descriptive of reality. And if we do that, then there's room for one of these other uh, non-descriptivist or non-representationalist views about the meaning of odd. Okay, stop there. Thanks.